0: So, hi, this is uh, Sinan Aral. I'm the David Austin Professor of Management, Marketing, IT, and Data Science at MIT, Director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, a Founding Partner at Manifest Capital, and Author of The Hype.
1: This, this is, this is
0: Diverse. Diversified. Diversified.
2: Diversified
0: Game Game. 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 Game.
1: A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kellen. He may agree, he may oppose. And it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. So let the game begin.
2: Hey, it's Kellen. And today on Diversified Game, this is a a show of no other because I'm going to try not to fan out. But the Author that I have today is probably the only author who has gone to MIT, Harvard, has worked at the tech companies that you use every day for this, you know, these phones. And he wrote the book that I've been telling y'all about, The Hype Machine. I haven't talked about a book like this since The Future is Faster Than You Think. So you know what I think about this book. Sinan Ar- welcome to the show. How are you doing?
0: Thank you. I'm doing very well. It's good to see you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: I thank you for coming on and taking the time. I I just you know, this this book that you wrote, it's like you mentioned your friends who could have wrote this book. Right. But they didn't. You wrote this book on where social media was and where it's going. What what? made you like put this book out to scare half the population who wrote it and then to have the other half say see I told you I knew that Facebook could read my thoughts I knew I wasn't crazy and you know so what made you do that well I'll
0: tell you when I first started researching this stuff literally 20 years ago people thought I was committing career suicide they said basically Sinan if you devote your science to this inconsequential technology that's just about like stupid cat memes uh, and things like that. What you ate for dinner last night, it's gonna be a complete waste. This is not gonna be a consequential technology. And I kept saying to them, I said, you know what? I disagree. I think it's gonna be really important. It's the next level of human interaction, collaboration, coordination, algorithmically driven, and so on. I think it's gonna have profound effects on our democracies, our economies, our public health. And it turned out that I was right and they were wrong. Uh, And so I had to write a a book to put it all in their face.
2: (laughs) But I, I want people to really understand, because some of the things you say in the book are things that aren't supposed to be said outside of certain walls. And were you at all like? worried that, wait, they might try to, like, have me locked up in a airport. You know, I don't want to say the name because <laughs> like in playing with cats and skateboards all day or have me, you know, hiding out in, in Russia. Were you all that worried about, you know, what could happen after this information?
0: You know, happened? it's funny. It's funny you say that because I wasn't worried. But I did have a conversation with my father on the phone. And he had read the book, and this was before the book was coming out. And he said, you know, Sinan, what, what are you doing about security? And I, was, and I said, what? What do you mean security? Uh, I had no idea what you're talking about. And he said, well, you know, there's a lot of powerful people that aren't going to want to hear a lot of this and are not going to want to be sort of publicly uh, outed for some of the things that they've been doing. And he said, particularly... Uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia. And he said, you know, uh, those those folks are ruthless when it comes to reaching across borders to get at people that they uh, don't like what they're saying or are threatening to their power and so on. And, you know, I had never even thought about it until that moment. I did not get a security detail or anything like that. I just, uh, from I'm just broadcasting from an undisclosed location. Let's put it that way.
2: <laughs> and have you found that, you know, that you should have, or have you just found that everyone's like, wait, he didn't lie in the book. I mean, he told the truth and the truth was going to come out eventually.
0: Yeah. You know what? I think that now uh, many, many more people are saying uh, what I said uh, first in the book Uh, And now there's this growing chorus of, um, you know, uh, of people that are sounding the various alarms. And so I feel more like I am in broader company now. So I think that the threat of what I wrote is uh, declining over time with regard to my own personal safety. So uh, I'm not worried about it.
2: And now when those people talk about it. You know, and, and it's like myself, there's things that I say and people say, Kellen how'd you know that? I just heard that. And I'm like, well, it's discernment, you know, or it's me reading something. It's not, you know, it's it, but you actually have the proof, the facts, because you were there and you, you know, put some of that technology together. um It's different from hearing it from you. So I'm glad to hear that no one's coming after you because I can't wait for like a part two and, you know, giving us more detail. But having the MIT, the Harvard connection, and everything—I I worry about the connections you don't tell us about, right? I'm like, is this guy AIC? You guys spell that backwards, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, what what does he really know about Interpol? Um, are how? crucial were going to these educational giants to your career? Could you have did it if you went to Cal or Stanford?
0: Um, Well, so I I was um, many years ago uh, approached by the NSA. And uh, I met with the director of the NSA, and he was interested in understanding um, what kind of signals there are in this data and so on. And I was approached to sort of uh, advise the NSA and, and so on, and I turned it down uh, for a variety of reasons. The, the main reason being that I prefer to be an objective scientist than to be working for either the large platforms or um, the government uh, and commenting broadly and objectively from the point of science, uh from my perch at mit is in my opinion much more effective than being uh you know embedded in the government or um working at the platforms and so on and so yeah my career has really taken three paths simultaneously i'm a scientist entrepreneur and an investor in that order so i'm a scientist first everything that i do leads with the scientific research that's all peer-reviewed and published in journals like science and nature and other places like that Um, i have a a team at mit i direct the initiative on the digital economy and we focus on analyzing massive data sets to understand the digital economy and we've done a number of uh, research papers on topics related to social media but also related to Coronavirus and its spread, um, as well as digital marketplaces and reviews and ratings, and how that's changing the way we make decisions. And so it's a big body of research. And that has led to uh, the foundation and forming and building of two companies uh, uh, as an entrepreneur, which we sold, and then finally starting uh, Manifest Capital with my longtime friend and business partner, Paul Falzoni. And so these three perspectives give me. Uh, sort of inside information, both with regard to data from the platforms, but also an understanding of how these technologies are built and commercially developed.
2: I can hear someone say right now, he also might have turned it down because it would be a pay cut. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) You know, um, having so and and I'm trying to have a teachable moment for uh, the 14 year old right now listening to this saying, wow, he turned down the NSA where, I, you know, I just hacked into the wrong site and now I'm on their list. Um, Is political ambitions at all being the CTO of the United States. Is any of that ever in your future, even at 70 or 80, you know, when you can say, you know what, I just want to collect and and be notarized for what I'm doing. Do you even have those ambitions?
0: I don't I don't really make uh, plans like that. So what I try to do is in my career, I try to be Uh, Focused on a particular set of goals that have nothing to do with the position or the money, um, but really have to do with what I believe is developing something valuable, whether it's a company or technology, uh, whether it's science and knowledge, whether it's education, um, and then to adapt to the opportunities that come my way. So I certainly wouldn't say that I would turn down any particular position or that I would definitely take it. I would um, you know, evaluate it at that point in my life, at that point in my career, does it make sense to further the broader goal of improving uh, our world through um, my understanding of technology and its impact on our society. That's really what I've been focused on for 20 years and what I continue to do in my three roles as a scientist, entrepreneur, and, and an investor.
2: Someone looking at your resume, reading the book, I I just want to know, does your family come to you for every technology (laughs) issue they've ever had? Hey, the thing won't turn on anymore Uh and then, you know, call you.
0: It's so funny because, uh, um, you know, I have a eight year old son and he I didn't give him screens for a long time when he was young. You know, he didn't get a lot of screen time, iPad and television and so on. That was not really part of his upbringing. Um, But when the pandemic hit, he became a virtual, he went into virtual education and he was doing schooling over, over Zoom and so on. And it became impossible to keep him off of technology because even if I limit it significantly, he has to have it now to socialize and to be in school and so on. And he went from being oblivious to technology to now being sort of like, the technical guru of the family and he can fix my computer now uh, in a matter of, of a year's time.
2: Well, and I would, assume, you know, everyone would say, of course he did. You know, he has your brain and he you <laughs> can watch because kids watch even when we think they're not watching. But where is your limitation in technology? Because I could see someone coming and saying, hey, could you take my Synology unit apart, put it together? And you're like, hold on. My focus yeah. is on this, not that. Like we're just so you know, people can see that everyone has limitations. What part of the technology, the computer, the software, do you not like dealing with?
0: Well, I'll tell you, I'm I'm mainly a statistician and a sort of analyzer of data. So I take very large data sets and I analyze these data sets to understand the sociology and the economics of how the movement of information through these social networks affects people's decision-making, voting, shopping, and so on. And over time, I've sort of, um, uh, I've gone from being in the trenches to being more, um, uh, uh, you know, a leader of teams of brilliant people. So it used to be that I would code, uh, a lot of my stuff myself when I was up up and coming graduate student and there was really nobody uh, below me. I was doing all the, the dirty work. Um, and now I do a lot less direct coding myself. I do some, but a lot less than I used to. Um, and that has consequences, which is that uh, those processes uh, evolve and there's innovation in those processes. So I have not uh, spent enough time staying current on the fastest, you know, most efficient uh, tools and algorithms for coding these large data sets as I used to. Now I'm focused much more on the methods of data analysis, the statistical models, and When graduate students or members of my corporate team come to me and they say, okay, like, this is what we're doing. Here's what we're trying to analyze. I can give guidance about, okay, well, here are the statistical theories. Here are the types of models we want to implement. But I haven't got my hands dirty uh, building the models myself in a long time. And so I'm rusty on those things. And I haven't kept up with the latest and greatest innovations with regard to uh, coding and programming and uh, and the data science of of sort of like uh, the nuts and bolts of the data science. Um, and so that's probably my biggest weakness now, whereas it was probably one of my strengths early on.
2: With all the knowledge that you do have, how do you humble yourself? Because, you know, it's certain people could say, hey, let me get with, you know, this guy, this guy, this guy, and we could all run the world because we know more in this than anybody else. It's like with COVID, our business did very well because many businesses were like, well, we need that help. You were talking about 10 years ago being online 100%. We need that help. And I'm like, oh, now you need the help. You know, the price has risen, right? Mm -hmm. But how do you then humble yourself to say, okay, I'm going to work with you guys and I know it's remedial and I'm going to charge you a premium price, but I don't know everything. Because once you get into that point where you know everything, as soon as they put you up, they wanna knock you down. So how do you humble yourself to say, I'm gonna deal with the regular earthlings in this world?
0: I gotta say, I think it's actually incredibly easy to be humble when you do the kind of work that I do. And the reason is because when you're sort of um, doing the science uh, at this scale and at this level, you realize how little you actually know. So we have published some, uh, what have been uh, lauded as sort of very important and interesting results. But at that, at that sort of bleeding edge, um, what you, you peer over the edge and you say, wow, I'm really kind of clueless to a lot of things that I can't see Uh, to a lot of things that I don't know. Uh, When you dive into something, as you probably know, when you dive into something with such detail and with such sort of gusto, if you will, you immediately are smacked in the face with everything you don't know on a daily basis. And that keeps you very humble. The other thing that's really easy that, that makes it very easy to be humble is that I work with extremely smart people that are always checking me all the time. Whether those are the peer reviewers who review our science uh, before it gets published, whether those are members of my team and I have a stupid idea, they'll just call me out and they'll say, that's a dumb idea and here's why. So when you work with people that are very smart, um, they keep you humble because their brilliance makes you realize uh, your own deficiencies very quickly.
2: And that goes back to the wise man knows that he knows nothing at all because exactly. there's, yeah. Now, I had someone read the book and one person was like, hey, I could barely follow this on Audible. So don't ask me to go back and read and, and reference you know anything. I said, well, that, that's okay. But they said, what I want to know from this guy is, does he have a company that I can just have the cheat code? Since he knows everything, can I just hire him? I see Damon John has his marketing company now, but I wanna hire the guy who actually can put it together. And what is that price? Gotta ask the question.
0: So, so yeah, I mean, you can you can uh, um, give people access to uh, email me. Uh, and I, I do very selectively, work with companies, um, depending on the opportunity uh, as an advisor, I'm typically an advisor to the CXO suite. And these companies are usually fairly big, um, you know, in the at least hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue per year and, you know, hundreds to thousands of employees. But um, typically my business now is in uh, helping run our um, investment fund, Manifest Capital. Uh, And to help the portfolio companies that we've invested in. Um, But at the same time, you know, uh, when it comes to reading the book, The Hype Machine, what I've noticed is that many people, a greater number of people than average say that they've read the book more than once that they read it once through and the stories were really interesting to them. And so like every chapter starts with a story that exemplifies what I try to describe in that chapter. But then they say, I marked pages, I highlighted and what I found myself doing was going back and reading it again the second time, again, a third time. Oh, and then I had this problem at work where it was all about, optimizing my digital marketing so i went back and i read chapter six again for the third time and that really taught me about that and then i wanted to know you know how uh you know um social media was affecting my kids brain so i went back and i read chapter four again for the third time and really understood how it was affecting my children and so I hear people say all the time that it's not a book you sort of like read once and you're like, yes, I read that. It's a book where you kind of like mark the pages and go back and read it again, that it's, it, it is a bit like drinking from a fire hose.
2: You have to study this book. And that's why I referenced the future is faster than you think. It's not a book you're just going to breeze through and say, that's great. No, you have to say, wait, hold on. They can do that. Go back, do your own research. And then for me, hey, can we do that? <laughs> can we replicate that for our clients and you know, figure out how, how we do that? So I, I definitely get it. But I'm glad that you put a huge cap at you know the companies you want to work with cuz I'm the type of guy and so are my my team members of to call you and say hey we were the guys calling for uh Sarah the setting automation relay assistant years ago and say hey we want that and like hold on you don't have enough business <laughs> to have this you got to be Walmart you can't be you know the couple mom and pops so I'm glad that you set that bar so people just don't bother him to bother him because it's at a huge level unless He wants to come down like you know like that
0: (laughs) it's it's just that it's just that between the research and teaching at mit and uh helping run our investment fund there's just not a lot of hours in the day i like spending time with my son and so uh, I spend a lot of time with him as well on, on, in, my, in my off time from work. And so the days just get sort of packed and I don't have a lot of time to sort of uh, take on additional work. But what I am trying to do is to, as you know, The Hype Machine was my first book. Uh, I'm working towards a second book now. I'm starting my own uh, podcast so those types of channels of reading um, books and or listening to the podcasts and so on, I will try to give sort of broad general advice and also uh, try to learn, for example, as as you do from my uh, podcast guests, uh, who I hope will be amazing people that will teach me and hopefully the audience a great deal. And so uh, I look forward to that because I'm somebody who's a lifelong learner. I'm somebody who is extremely curious. I'm somebody who knows that there are people out there in the world that just know so much more than I do about specific things. And I just want to learn from them. And, and, you know, a lot of that comes through in the book and hopefully in the podcast too.
2: Now, when thinking about your eight-year-old son, where do you not want social media to go? Because we are living in the Twilight Zone. We are living in Black Mirror season three, episode one (laughs) already. Where do you like if it's one thing you can say, I don't want this to happen with social media because we're all benefiting of a much faster life and people are becoming depressed. I talked to a young man today, artist who was like, I'm depressed because of social media. Well, take it away. It's not mandatory, you know, but that's he grew up in. he, he was born in like 98 or something. So he's like, that's all I know. So. Where do you not want social media to go?
0: Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because the priorities that we've set with social media lend themselves to uh, giving our kids um, bad self-image, to decreasing their confidence, to, um, you know, giving them anxiety. Um, And the reason for that, it's not clear why we have decided to emphasize these priorities in social media. Yes, yes. Um, In the book, I describe that a lot of it is linked to the business model. So this notion of the attention economy and the engagement economy where the platforms sell your attention to uh, advertisers as an opportunity to uh, persuade. So they get your attention, they sell that attention so that people can run ads. Um, That has led to a major priority of social media being popularity. And when popularity is a priority the wrong things sometimes bubble to the top, Um, things that are not necessarily educational or wholesome or ethical. Um, And I don't know why uh, popularity is the number one sort of goal of social media. Why don't we, so take for example, the like button, right? How did we end up with a like button? When, when the the number one metric that social media is measured on is how many people like it, then you're built on popularity. But why isn't there a truth button or a this taught me something button? Or like you get credit and access to more followers when you're educational or when you impart, you know, some sort of helpful uh, wellness or um, truth or scientific knowledge. You know, we haven't prioritized that. We have we. Uh, you you can't manage what you don't measure and you are measuring popularity. You are privileging popularity. That's making kids chase popularity. That's making them depressed when they don't have popularity. Uh, and it is a vicious cycle that I hope will be broken by uh, various, various redesigns. You know, the platforms have been um, at various times experimenting, for example, with hiding likes, um, demoting uh, that as being the primary goal of the system and so on, and I hope that continues.
2: I need you guys to go back and rewind that because it's the reason why we're going to have reality stars you know well actually we have reality stars being presidents but we're going to have other ones and they're going to be you know twerking like this is a music video and we will see what society what happens to society it's like when you go to seattle and you see all the uh green um paramedic signs and you're like oh they got clinics everywhere until you get close to the parking lot and say this clinic smells very interesting. Um, so, you know, and, and it, it's it's what type of society we want to live in. Reason why I, I love being a nomad and that's the lifestyle for me and my family. Now, with all the success that you've had, and I truly believe the best is yet to come. What is a community give back that you are doing or that you'd like to do in the future that you haven't mentioned already?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So great question. And thank you for that. I, you know, when it when it comes to success or the future and so on, I feel like I'm just getting started. I feel like I have a ton of energy and I've got a lot of ideas that I'm pursuing now that I and I, I, I uh, you know, I think it was Outcast that said, you're only as funky as your last cut. So I don't really dwell on what, what we did in the past. I'm really looking forward to what we're doing right now. We've got a bunch of papers under review. We're working on a lot of huge projects. We're embarking on new research projects, for instance, about the metaverse and what that's going to look like and so on that are going to be fascinating. Giving back. So throughout the uh, time that I've been a scientist, uh, since the beginning, since day one, I have been focused on uh, sustainable development uh, in uh, different parts of the world. And I'll give you a couple of examples. I'm from Turkey originally. And so, you know, um, you know Europe and the United States are not really the only purview uh, or interest that I have. Have when I was in graduate school, uh, I worked on a project, for example, called Sustainable Access in Rural India, which was about bringing um, wireless and local loop uh, internet services to poor rural villages in India, and understanding how that affected labor markets, how that affected health information, how that affected um, price information, and whether that could rationalize and reduce the price of basic. Uh, commodities like dal or vegetables uh, in various markets that are separated from each other in geographies. And the goal of that was to um, bring sustainable development to um, rural India. I've worked, for example, uh, at length um, on HIV in South Africa. We've got uh, a big set of projects now that are randomized controlled trials in South Africa nationwide nationwide. Uh, trying to promote HIV testing. I don't know if you know this, but um, you know, in South Africa, you know, the prevalence of HIV in the United States is less than 1%, but in South Africa, it's about 15%. And in some some small towns, it's closer to 50%. So like one in two people have HIV uh, in some of these towns in South Africa. Now, there was a big movement in South Africa to bring antiretroviral drugs uh, to the public at low cost, and that was a very hard-fought social movement that was successful. So now ARVs are available at low cost to the public, but um, the main impediment to addressing the HIV epidemic in South Africa is that uh, people don't get tested enough. So they don't know their HIV status and then they don't get on the drugs. And the number one reason people don't get tested is because of stigma. And so uh, what we're working on is instead of having government billboards that promote HIV testing, What if we did peer-to-peer spreading of the message of HIV testing, where the messages come from your trusted friends and family rather than from government billboards? Could that improve HIV testing in South Africa? And we're doing a nationwide uh, randomized controlled trial using social media like Facebook and WhatsApp to spread HIV testing messages and to incentivize them to give people free minutes on their phone for every test they take and for every test they refer somebody else to, kind of like the referral programs you have for Uber or Lyft or Dropbox. We use those for HIV testing in South Africa as well. um, So we're doing a lot of scientific research in Africa, in uh, in the subcontinent, and so on to work on sustainable development. And at Manifest Capital, we have a plan uh, to establish what we are uh, talking about as a progress fund that would be a uh, for-profit sustainable development fund that would be designed to um, fund technologies and companies that would solve some of the world's biggest challenges, whether it is food insecurity, or water quality, uh, et cetera. So we, we have a very sincere dedication uh, to giving back to trying to make the world a better place. And that is uh, really one of the most important goals uh, for me in my life. Wow,
2: I love that because I remember when MTV um, had Sugar, the show, come out to talk about the HIV. And I'm like, well, we need more of this. And now I guess we even need it globally for COVID, especially for the Karen and Kevins who say, I don't want to vaccine our mask up. We we need you know shows based on our reality to show us. Um, so I love that. Do you find that governments have a difficult um problem or or time like connecting with entertainment because entertainment needs to do it in a certain the language of the people whereas government you know it takes 10 years to do anything so even for government to give that money and shift it it takes you know seven different people who are all in their 60s and above to say yes we get it like they're the main audience no your days of hiv is probably you don't have to worry about it you know minus yeah. the guys on K Street,
0: you know? Yeah, well, take, take, for example, the COVID vaccine and trying to promote vaccinations. We did a very large project in collaboration with the World Health Organization and with Facebook, where we created the largest longitudinal survey of COVID behaviors, norms, and perceptions in the world. We surveyed um, about 2 million people in nearly 70 countries. Uh, and we ran randomized experiments on this survey where, in particular, we gave some people the percentages of people in their local neighborhoods that say they would take a vaccine randomly assigned to come either before or after the question where where we asked them whether they would take a vaccine. And what we found was that giving people truthful, very basic information about the fraction of people in their neighborhoods that would take a vaccine uh, increased vaccine acceptance by four to five percent and was most effective for people who didn't know if they would take a vaccine and for people who underestimated the number of other people in their local communities that would take a vaccine. What this means is social proof works. In other words, when you see leaders in your community getting a vaccine, promoting the fact that they're uh, getting a vaccine, it actually encourages people to get a vaccine. So when President, former President Obama got a vaccine in public, had it videoed and put that out to the world. That is very influential. When we were trying to promote the polio vaccinations, people like Elvis Presley publicly got their vaccination. And that was very helpful. And so from micro-influencers all the way up to the Obamas of the world to show your uh, support for vaccines by demonstrating that you're getting a vaccine, we've shown in very large-scale research can actually increase vaccine acceptance. So this notion of influence and social media influence, uh, as I describe it, um, we have to get past this debate about whether social media is good or evil because the answer is yes. And it all depends on what you say on social media, whether the outcomes are good or bad. As we promote, um, you know, vaccinations through this social proof and social influence, we have a greater likelihood of getting out of this mess that we're in with COVID. And those influencers are absolutely essential to that. I'll say one last thing about that, which is, I don't envy the position of the White House or the government, for example, in the United States with regard to vaccine uh, communication, because it's a really hot button subject. People are really um, have opinions about whether they should be getting vaccines or whether they should be forced to get a vaccine. I saw Talib Kwali today put on his Instagram. He hopes that they force people to get a vaccine. He supports forced vaccinations. I think that's an outlier view, but I understand where he's coming from because I also understand that vaccinations are the key to getting us out of this pandemic. Um, and But when, you, when it comes to sort of forcing people to do something like that, for some people it's against their religious beliefs and so on, it's a very tricky thing. I think that we should do everything we can to convince people to get a vaccine. Um, and the more micro to macro influencers we have promoting it, uh, the better. We've got people, you know, there's a guy called uh, Valentine who is a, a conservative radio show host, okay? And he was anti-vaccine to the limit. He was really against the vaccine. Then he got COVID, okay? And he, and then he was like, wow, I was wrong. Everybody should get vaccinated. And last week, that man died. And those kinds of events are the unfortunate result of sort of um uh uh this vaccine misinformation the vaccine denial uh that that has plagued uh the last three decades for us that this by the way the story of vaccine misinformation is a fascinating story which i also tell in the book
2: yes yes and, and you know i knew a lot of guys who were against antibiotics their whole life until they got gonorrhea and they got the Clap, hey, I need to run and get that. So it's always until maybe you experience it. As a scientist, and this is clearly for the 14-year-old and my wife, who also is a scientist, how do you cope with hearing all the fake data and stories from people who didn't even pass chemistry when you see them on TV or online and you're like, that's not true?
0: Yeah, it's frustrating. It's super frustrating. I saw a really interesting TikTok video the other day where they had side by side a vaccine misinformation video and then a scientist debunking it. So running in the same time step, the person would make a claim and the scientist would say, no, that's not true. That's not how it works. And then they would make a comment. No, that's actually not true at all. And this is this is how it works instead. And uh, that is how I feel every day when it comes to, to misinformation, scientific misinformation, public health misinformation. And it has real consequences. It has absolutely real consequences. It affects people's opinions. It affects their behavior. And when they make decisions like not getting vaccinated, um, not getting their kids vaccinated, it leads to a rise in measles. It leads to an extension of the COVID pandemic. And these have very real health consequences. People die. People die from this. And it's, uh, and it's a real problem.
2: Yes, and in Seattle, um, you know, the islands, uh, what is it the The island right next to Seattle that you know, you take the ferry, there was just a measles outbreak not too long ago, because no one on the, um, it started with the V, the island, nobody wanted to, you know, get vaccinated their kids for the measles. So I just yeah, you, you have to get vaccinated. Um, you know, before wrapping up, I would like to know, are you friends with any conspiracy theorists that you know we hear shouting who always have data that they say they have friends in high places yeah I'm talking about you Alex Jones in a good way um you know are you friends with anyone in do you know Q because sometimes they get this data and they just I I promise you I know the person who knows this stuff and they never say a name of course but I just want to (laughs) know I don't know
0: Alex Jones I can I can definitely tell you that (laughs) <laughs> um, and, and he's certainly not getting any information from me, otherwise he'd be singing a different tune in a lot of respects. Um, you know, I, one thing that, that I describe in detail in the book, which I think is fascinating from a sociology perspective, is this notion of homophily, which is basically that birds of a feather flock together. We are statistically hundreds of times more likely to make friends with people like ourselves than with people of differing opinions. And that's bad in a lot of ways. In other words, that is related to the polarization that we see. Um, People can't speak, quote unquote, across the aisle because they don't um, understand the other uh, side's perspective. I think we need more cross-cultural dialogue in order to solve some of the major challenges that we face as a society, both globally um, and uh, even in the United States uh, alone, Um, but I don't think that, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I don't believe I know any uh, people who believe in QAnon. Um, if, if they do, then they're hiding it quite well. Um, uh, and I don't think that, uh, you know, many of those conspiracy theories are in any way linked to credible scientific informers, as you, as you noted, uh, that are sort of giving them the inside scoop um uh i'd be curious to know who those informers are
2: okay and folks homophily h-o-m-o-p-h-i-l-y because some flags are like what google's right there ask google do you think they'll ever that birds of a feather flocking together can never be a good thing, because I tell people I love and most of my friends are entrepreneurs. If you're my friend and you're not an entrepreneur, I'm trying to make you an entrepreneur because when I want to go snowboarding or if I want to go do something cool, I just want to be able to pick up and go to the beach. It's a free time at the beach and I don't want you to hear. Oh, let me go ask my boss. So do you ever see that being a good thing, especially with automation coming up and all that?
0: Yeah, no, we've seen that it can be a very good thing in a lot of ways. So people that are uh, similar can provide professional support, social support, it creates really tight knit bonds, because you've got a lot of commonality. And so those friendships and those relationships are really thick and tight and really, you know, uh, strong relationships And when you are trying to, as a team, go take that hill over there, the tight knit bond of "quote unquote" brothers, if you will, uh, of you know the band of brothers in sort of a military uh, sense, going to take that hill with with your platoon, you need that trust. You need that high level of uh, really tight knit relationships. So research has shown that that can be extremely beneficial for some things. However. At the same time, we need in our uh, social networks to have diversity. And the reason we need diversity is because that's where you get out of the box thinking. I prefer to call it out of the network thinking because really that's where ideas that you hadn't thought of come from. As a scientist, I've found talking to people in fields that are further from mine, give me ideas about how to solve a problem in my field that people in my field who are that tight-knit community hadn't even thought about before. And that sort of -of out-of-the-box, out-of-the-network thinking is useful for innovation, entrepreneurship, useful for science, useful for business, useful for um, scanning the landscape for new opportunities and so on. So, really, the best kind of networks are the ones that have a little bit of tight-knit homophily where you have similar people together uh, working as a tight knit group. And then you have lots of diverse uh, connections outside going from within that group to outside, getting you all of that out of the box thinking that sort of jars your public perception of the world and makes you think differently.
2: Awesome, awesome. I'm not going to give you guys a game overload because some of you guys are stuck in the mustard still trying to catch up to this conversation. But I, you know, I want you to let people know where you're at and where they can connect on social media with you. But with that, also tell them your the last book you read, you know, one of your favorites, as well as your favorite conference to go to because I think conferences make the difference, and I just love to hear you know what you're reading and where you're going.
0: Well, I, I will say that the book that I read most recently, uh, and I'm not picking my favorite, I'm just picking right off the top of the shelf, the last book that I read, was called uh, The Three-Body Problem. It's actually a Chinese science fiction uh, book uh, about uh, the uh, encounter of human beings with extraplanetary uh, life, as well as uh, the future of the metaverse, this notion of having an online world that's immersive, AR, VR. It's kind of like a takeoff from uh, Snow Crash, Neal Stephenson, or... Uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer in the Modern Day uh, from a Chinese author, won a lot of awards. It's actually a three-part series book. It's called The Three-Body Problem. I highly recommend that if you're into physics, if you're into space travel, if you're into science fiction and so on. Um, And where you can find me. So I am at Sinan Aral on Twitter, S-I-N-A-N-A-R-A-L. I'm at Professor Sinan on Instagram. Uh, and you can find all of my stuff, uh, on www.sinonoral.io
2: Awesome. And the conference, one of your favorite okay. conferences to go to.
0: You know, I love, I love, uh, conferences. I, I would have to pick, uh, I'm going to give you three names because there's a lot of different ways that you can conference. I'm a nerd. So I like, um, kind of like nerdy conferences, uh, in terms of nerdy conferences, my top two uh, are the Workshop on Information Systems Economics and Neuronips, which is an, uh, an AI and machine learning uh, conference. Uh, the, uh, the the more general audience conferences that I like uh, are TED and PopTech. Uh, and you can find a lot of that content online as well without having to go physically. I like to go physically because you know, in a in a non pandemic era, era, it's a really good way to meet people that are inspiring and interesting and that you can learn from.
2: You guys have got the game. If you do nothing else, share it with someone. It will change their life. I thank you for coming on.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the conversation.
1: Are you tired of the red race in America? Are you ready to visit the motherland to relax and rejuvenate? Are you ready to explore all that Africa has to offer? Then check out the brand new Diversified Game Academy course, prepare for my first trip to Africa. Are you worried about being able to afford the trip? We got you. We will show you how to travel either on a budget or as a baller. Learn how to stress the value of the USD, Did you know that 100 United States dollars is worth over 1,000 South African Rand or 10,000 Kenyan shillings or 54,250 West African CFA? Are you worried about taking your kids? Get the game from Kelly Cash, a bona fide world traveler, having traveled to almost 20 countries, several of those in Africa. Get the game on taking your kids on their first trips. Learn how to find the best tickets, get the visas, and plan your own adventures in Africa. Don't let Eddie Murphy have all the fun Plan your own coming to Africa trip, starring you, produced by you and featuring you. If you are ready for a life changing experience, sign up for our course today, Diversified Game Academy. Get prepared and purchase at diversifiedgame.com.